Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, it's 9-8-2021. We're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for answering our prayers. Uh, when we petition you, we, we are grateful for the opportunity to focus our attention on your word and uh, your eternal purpose. So we pray for those who have joined and we pray that we will have the wisdom that we seek. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our normal course of study is in uh, Romans. Tonight we're going to be looking at Romans 9, and I think we're in verse 25, no, no, 24. So we're just rounding out uh, the analogy and giving examples about it. Uh, we'll get to that later, but we do have some, some time for some Q&A. We'll pause for a minute to see if there are any questions out there. Good evening. Uh, yes, I had a, uh, a question. Um, it centers around the uh, uh, the transfiguration uh, found in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And um, it's not about the transfiguration, uh, which was previously talked about. Uh, it's It has to do with uh, Elijah and Moses and the fact that they were recognizable by the disciples. And uh, so my question is, uh, being that they were recognizable uh, after they transcended uh, and were in paradise, uh, all the saints that entered that left here through death, are they recognizable in the interim state before they get the resurrection bodies? Uh, so that's the question. Are they recognizable before they get their, uh, their resurrection bodies in any way in the interim state? So, um, so or, well, not so much the transfiguration, but, um, but I guess the question stems from uh, when uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and uh, if you follow me in Matthew chapter 16, uh, this is where it begins to, to unfold. So uh, Matthew 16, the very last verse reads, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So a lot of puzzled uh, interpretations on this verse, uh, but I don't think the uh, reason for Jesus saying that is, you know, some special interpretation. What we have here is going to verse seven, chapter 17. That's where we want to go. So he said, he made that statement at the end of 16, which says, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in this kingdom. If you go to 17, 
after six days, this is verse 1, Jesus took him, uh, took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So that, uh, of what he was saying in the end of chapter 16, is being fulfilled right here in chapter 17. Then he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Uh, as light. So here, Jesus is transfigured before them, but notice it is similar to what? He's giving them a taste of what it will be like at his second coming. Uh, so then he so th just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So uh, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you, if you wish, I will put up shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So the question is, how did the disciples know that it was Moses and Elijah? So scripture tells us, just, just then, verse, seven, uh, verse 3, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So forget about what Peter said, <laughs> but how did Peter and James and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? I would say uh, they were told. That's because we don't have recognition for, uh, you know, pictures for people who are in the Old Testament. It just doesn't exist. Uh, in fact, they didn't have pictures uh, before it existed, but they had, they could have paintings. I know they did uh, busts of people, and you know they had images that they could, you know, an artist could um, carve out of clay and you know stone. All that was there, but not pictures. And then, especially for people who lived that many years ago, I would think not. So the only way they could have known that this is Moses and Elijah is if somebody told them. That I, I can't imagine another way. I can't imagine they say, oh, that, that's Moses. Oh, that's Elijah. I can't imagine that being the case. So so that story uh our old, and on the question, are Old Testament saints recognizable? I would say, no, not right offhand. I think we will meet these people ourselves, and uh, we will have the opportunity to introduce our, <clears throat> ourselves to them. And I bet when we introduce ourselves to them, they're going to say, oh, are you kidding? I know you. <laughs> I know. I don't know if that's the case. But imagine that being the case because of who we are in Christ. We are uh, probably um, lifted up as those who are in Christ, and uh, we have a very special role in God's eternal purpose. So let's just follow up with this thought in Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. It says, um, if you look at verse 16, this is what Peter gets from the story. Now, it could be that we can think about a lot of things in that story, because there's a lot to say. You know, wow, that's a, that's a sign, you might say. And it is. This, is. this is in the category of a sign. So it's miracles, signs, and wonders. We could say wonder, too, but 
literally a sign. Why do I say sign? Because of what Peter says in Second Peter 1.16 and following. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is acknowledging what he saw and what it was about, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Now, why would God show them a glimpse of what was going to happen in the future? And what would Christ look like? And because really this person was walking around with them, talking to them, interacting with them. So all of a sudden Jesus is lifted up in glory. And it's just outside of how they would have been able to perceive him any other way. So this is like, are you for Christ to be transfigured sets him apart from the disciples. It not only sets them apart, but it shows them who this man really is and what, what he would be in the coming, uh, the second coming. So they were, I went, Peter says, I saw this with my own eyes. I was there. I'm a witness. I'm telling you, this is the truth. I have seen it. So he's saying, we're not making this up. This is the first part of it. We, we are not making up stories when we're telling you about this stuff. I saw it with my own eyes. And what, what is important to us, for somebody uh, to trust the words of Peter as, uh, you know, as true, we are examining those words, we're tr and we're coming to the fact that, look, what Peter said is true. We didn't see it. Nobody here on the call saw what Peter saw. But we are trusting that these things did happen and that uh, they are true. So Peter is saying, he's following it up with, this is important for us. How is this important for us? Because he's relating this to us. He's saying, verse 17, he received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this is another testament, a sign, as it were, from the father, speaking about his son, lifting him up in glory, and, saying, and then he pronounces these words, and all of them hear these words. This is not, not the first time these words were pronounced from heaven or from the Father about Jesus. But it is, I think there are a total of four times that this happens, that they hear from heaven. So here he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So, so verse 18, we ourselves heard the voice, this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And then here's the message, what we are supposed to take away from that story. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And what is that? That's the word of God. That's what we have. We, what we have is the prophetic message from the prophets written for our benefit. So if you think about it, he's saying the word of God. What do we call it? Thy word is truth, right? It is transmitted by God 
through prophets and received by us. Right? That's how it's supposed to be. Right? God is, that's how he communicates to us. That's how he communicates this message. So he said, we heard the voice from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have prophetic messages, something completely reliable. And you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. This goes back to we did not follow cleverly devised stories in verse 16. You should know that it is the Bible that we have in front of us, of us is completely reliable. Completely. For prophecy never had, verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through human, though human rather, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is telling us that we can trust the prophetic message. And he's using as a backdrop for this that he was an eyewitness, but we have something more sure than what, the, what he actually saw. And that is a prophetic word. And you know, for what all that Peter went through, he should have trusted the word of God and he wouldn't have gone through so much trouble. But now that he's writing, he's able to write to us and tell us. He's saying, you know what? Maybe I didn't trust it as I, as I should have, but you ought to. Because it is from God. God is literally speaking to you in the Word of God. And you could turn your shoulder. You could turn your face away from God and say, I'm not listening. Peter's saying, don't do it. Because the more you listen to the Word, it is like the day dawning and the morning star rising in your heart. That's what it's like. It's like you, you start looking at the Word, it's a dark place. You don't know anything. But as you continue to pay attention to the prophetic message, it is like the day, like it's like morning, coming from night to morning, and then high noon. That's what happens with the word in your heart, literally. That's the message we are to get from the transfiguration. But I'm going to pause to see if there are any questions about it. Yes, uh, I don't know. I, I certainly understand the message. That was the intent of the uh, prophecy. Uh, I, I don't know if you answered, um, I guess, um, the, the, the disciples. Um, this is the story Jesus told is about all we can deduct. Is that correct? Well, this is a story. To the disciples. That was, in other words, the disciples deducted that that was Elijah and Moses. No, I'm thinking that's not that's not what I'm thinking. I mean, if it was a wrong, I mean, it could, there's no way they could have just deduced it. They were told that this was Elijah and Moses. How, there's no way for them to deduce it. 
And if, if they were wrong, then, I mean, Jesus could have corrected well, them. But I don't think that was the point. I think well, it's, they were just told. Moses and Elijah, um, I mean, is that to assume that they didn't have some type of uh, translucent body or there were there was something about them that, you know, I don't think they were shadowy figures. Um, even if they were told, um, do, do you see where I'm going? And I think that there was something that they looked at and, and Jesus told them that was Elijah and Moses. Yeah. There had to be something. That yeah, two, two men. Yeah, two men appeared. Something that, I, I would say two men appeared with Jesus, just like it says, and they were talking with Jesus. Yeah, so so it's just like. God, and we, we've discussed this before about how God can, when it is needful in the plan, he can, he can cause people to come and to be presented to us. Now, it doesn't mean that um, that's the form they have, but that is where God allows them to enter into space and time for some special purpose. And we've seen it in, in Old Testament times with... The angel of the Lord and uh, different things like that happening. We have seen we've seen this situation where Moses and Elijah were able to be presented to people, uh, not necessarily that they have a body or a resurrection body, but God is allowing them to enter into our space and time. And also, I noted in the book of Hebrews, um, God says, and this is Hebrews thirteen. And this is what it says. It says that we wouldn't know uh, that we ought to be careful because we could be entertaining angels unawares. Let, let me just see if I can find that. Uh, it's in Hebrews 13 somewhere. But, but the thought, as I'm looking for it, the thought is that we, uh, that this can happen. This is not something that is outside of God's uh, option to do right um, yeah it's somewhere I thought well <clears throat> when we find it we will we I'm will, looking to I don't yeah. see it yet. I'm pretty sure I thought it was in Hebrews 13 I could it be in 12 I'm sorry what's the verse again it talks about angels what are you looking for Oh, oh, let me let me just search for it. I just was kind of looking over. Hang on, mm. we're gonna we're gonna nail this one. Trust before we move on. I think yeah. So yeah, it's Hebrews thirteen and two. I thought it was down further in in the in the chapter. I don't know why I, I was thinking it was further, but anyways, Hebrews thirteen two. So let's read one first. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, by for for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So, I think this is God's way of telling us that angels can enter our space and time. Now, if you say, "Well, is that the angel's body?" No, God gave them a body. Just like he gave bodies to those angels in the Old Testament who came with 
the, the, the angel of the Lord. And remember, when they got to Sodom <laughs> uh, and Lot, remember the whole thing was they they were they looked just like men. And they said, "Well, we want we want them." That's what the people of Sodom said, and that was horrible, horrible. Sodom, uh, Lot had to no, you can't have these men, no way. And but these these people were so lustful, they had to be blinded, and then the angels left, escaped out of there. Now, other than that, it was just getting violent. But notice these were angels, and just imagine how they were treated. So don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, people have shown hospitality to angels without even realizing it. So we, we don't know uh, how, and you know, we, these things we'll know later, exactly how, what went down and how it happened, but right now we don't know. This is what it said, we're not, we, for not even knowing it. In this case, these were figures from the Old Testament that came, and uh, and we have record of it. We know it happened. And and we know that God is part of the eternal purpose as a sign. Now, sign gifts are for certain things. And this sign gift was to establish who Jesus Christ was. And as Peter uses that later in his writings to identify that we ought to trust the word of God. And so, so I don't, even though it doesn't say so in the context, I think it is, we can assume that. And part of our reasoning from contextually looking at things is we're not going to always see things spelled out for us 100%. But, but having that context allows us to put it together so that we can make sense of what is there reasonably I think so other thoughts well I'm going to um, I, I, I so are there other scriptural references that refer to our interim state after death uh, in heaven oh As, uh, in other words, as uh, what they call a uh, interim, what I've heard this term, interim body. Yeah, we talked about that in Second Corinthians chapter five. I think that's where we really discussed that in more detail. And Second uh, Corinthians chapter five is where I don't here. I can just read it. I just read it. So, for we know that if our earth, this is 5.1, our earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in the heaven not built by human hands. So, so get this thought. So, if we leave this body, if we leave this body, what will happen to us is the question. Now, is... If you look at this, really, and when we talked about the context from 4 all the way into 5, we talked about the fact that there was persecution. And if, and this says if this earthly tent is destroyed, that is to say we've been martyred. That means we've given our, if we have to give our lives 
in the service of God. Now, I'm not saying it makes a difference whether you gave your life, you know, and you were, you know, working for God and you get, or, or you just died. I, I don't think it's a difference along those lines. But I'm just noting that the context is, is that of, you know, persecution. If you go back to four, you'll see all that. So what happens if you leave? We have a building from God. It's an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So, so now think about it. So is there some sort of body that we have? Or, or what? What is it like if we were to... Because leaving the, the body is the soul and the spirit departing from the body. That's a separation. That's death, physical death. He's saying there is an eternal house in heaven. So in other words, there's a place for us that fits us. An eternal house in the heavens, not built by human hands. So it is something that is prepared by God for us to dwell in, in the heavenly realms. And, well, let's just put it this way, in heaven. Right? That's, where, that's where we belong. And we talk about we're heavenly people already. That's who we are. We're heavenly people. How do we get to be heavenly people? When everybody else down here is earthly people. They are earthly people. They belong on the earth. We belong in heaven. So look at verse 2 and following. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Now, what's found naked? Found naked is a person who does not who who is separated but does not have a body. That's what the writer is here trying to tell us what it means to be found naked. But if he's saying we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So notice it's not a heavenly body, it's a place. A place fits you. A place makes you at home, and you don't need a body for you to feel at home in that place. He says he's longing to be clothed instead, which means it's not a body, but it's a place. Because when we are clothed, we are not found naked. Right? That's Because we don't want to be found naked. Let's look at verse 4. For while we are in this tent, the human body, which is now, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So there's a little bit of ambivalence here. Because we're in this tent. You know why? Because we feel at home in this tent. We, you know, for us to leave and, de and depart is not an easy thing. This is what he's saying in verse 4. While we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Well, we groan on the one hand because we want to leave this tent. And be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, but we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but we wish to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So I'm hoping his ambivalence is clear so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What, what is mortal is subject to death. This body may be swallowed up by life. And this is the life that we have in the heavenly dwelling. But he has some ambivalence about dying. Literally, that's what he's saying here in verse 4. Verse 5. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Now when he says he's fashioned us for this very purpose, he's talking about 
the work that God has done for us, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So we don't just have an earthly hope where we are going to be resurrected and live on the earth. That's, that's not who we are. We are, going, we are heavenly people. We are not of this world. That is our primary purpose, which is heavenly. We belong in the third heaven. This is where God dwells right now. This is the third heaven. This is where Christ says, I am going to prepare a place for you. That's That place that Christ is going there to prepare is our place. This is where we belong. This is what Paul is talking about here. So, so verse 5 says, he was this, this is what's been given to us as a spirit, as a deposit. So in other words, that's the same thing we have. We have the deposit from the Spirit, those who are in this age, guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, the fact that we already have that deposit means we're sure that when we leave here, that we're going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, which he says later in verse 8. I'm confident I say we'd rather to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So so anyway, that's where so it doesn't necessarily say we're going to get a body when we get up there and because we will be just like the Father and just like the Son and just like the Spirit. They are all spirits. We are a spiritual being, but to note what's coming later for us is a resurrection body. So all of us will receive a resurrection body. Why? Because Christ has a resurrection body. And we're going to be just like him in every respect. So I'll pause. Thank you very much. Yeah, so... You know, actually, we, we got some of this where we talked about this in great detail. And I have some notes on it, too. I could um, share those with you uh, in Second Corinthians. I just have to find them. <laughs> I mean, I know where they are. I'll just have to locate them. I could pass them along to you. So we covered this, uh, this chapter uh, in detail. So I'd like, to, I'd like to share it if, we, if I could. That'll be a good refresher for me, too, to look back at it. All right, so so let's move forward into Romans chapter 9. This is where we are, Romans chapter 9. So we do have some notes. I'll pull them up. And remind me, i got to add Brenda to those notes. I don't think she gets them. But I will. Sorry, um, Brenda, I'll make sure I add you to those yeah. notes. I get the notes done. Yeah, but you don't get, I don't, are you on the Wednesday notes? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, right. I, I guess I, I did cover that. Uh, all right. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so in, in our notes, we're, we're looking at Romans nine twenty four. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So from our contextual view of Romans 9, we can clearly see God's purpose in communicating to us. As we forge ahead in the chapter, God has a message for us who do not understand 
his eternal purpose. The fact that God has destined glory for us goes beyond words. While we cannot fully appreciate all of what is said of us, but we can saturate ourselves in God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So we have come a long way. And you know, Paul is, I think we have uh, solidified some things here in Romans 9. We have solidified just what he's talking about, what the subject is. And you know, part of understanding any letter that's written is to understand the purpose of writing. Why is this letter being written? Uh, and then we can contextually be able to understand, uh, interpret what is being said. So that's what we've done. And we got down to this place where he says, even us. So I want to go through it and talk to why we think it is confirmation that we're on the right track. That's what, what I think it is. So this, the first point is, yes, the reference is to us. And we know that because the second part of the phrase talks about uh, not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles. So, and he's talking about the fact that we're called, right? So that's 923B. Uh, when, so when we look at 923B, that's the last half of that verse. It says, to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. So who did he prepare in advance for glory? Even us. Okay, that's who. Whom he is also called. So we're going to look at that phrase, whom he also called, uh, in detail. So we understand that verses 23 and 24 go together. We need verse 23 and 24 to make this make sense. It, oh, of course, we, we really understand it, but I think we could, it, it's more confirmation that we are on the right track, right? That's, if you're interpreting this from a different standpoint, then there's going to be something that sticks out and doesn't fit. Well, the fact that it fits says we've been talking about this whole thing from the long, along from when we started. Uh, so let's look at point B. This is what, what I would call contextual confirmation. That's what this is. But the question will be, but of what? And two points to make um, as to how I see this as contextual confirmation. The first one is that the subject is about us, the church, and is using the forming of Israel and Pharaoh as examples of God's sovereignty. And where do I get all that from? <laughs> all the previous chapter verses in chapter 9 verses 1 2 through 23 we're not going to go through the whole thing but he starts off glorifying Israel right talking about I wish I could verse 3 I wish I'm uh, myself could were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race the people of Israel theirs is the adoption to sonship theirs is the divine glory the covenants the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of, 
of the Messiah, who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. So we look at the doxology. We could say that's a doxology for Israel. It is certainly, I mean, you don't have any question about what Paul is talking about. And where did he come from? He, come from, he came from chapter 8. But he's showing you some things now about Israel. And he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed for those who are descended from Israel. And we got into this and we saw how uh, he clearly talked about the sovereignty of God and how the nation of Israel was formed. Now, did the nation of Israel need a, a lesson on how all this worked? No, they know this in detail. They know that this is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, the only circles that of where this doesn't make sense is, let's say, Islam. It, Islamic circles, they don't, they say Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael. That's what they say. Now, but we know. I mean, the Bible was written oh two thousand years before the Quran was written, and the Quran even is is veering off the path of what had been established for more than 2,000 years. Now Islam comes along and says, oh no, it's not Isaac, it's Ishmael, right? But anyway, we're, we're dismissing that because that is obviously not accurate. It is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what is Paul reminding them of? <clears throat> He's reminding them that God sovereignly chose the nation Israel. Now, why did he do? You could say, well, God, couldn't you just tell everybody about salvation and it all be just one we'd all be one big happy family it was god's design to call forth a nation so that that nation can be witness to other nations and that was god's plan to do so it is in his eternal purpose to create the nation israel that's part of that's a component part of god's eternal purpose so what he is reminding Israel of is the fact that he is the one who chose Israel. It is not up to them. They, they didn't all of a sudden wake up and say, you know what I think I want to do? I want to be Israel. No, God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he adopted Israel as sons, as his nation. All of that language is spoken of to Israel. So, so Paul is pointing out, hey, God is forming the nation Israel. And he goes through, and, he, and as we looked at the story, we saw all the deviations and things that they tried to do to assert their human will. Right? We said, you know, it wasn't uh, it, Isaac. They wanted Ishmael. It wasn't Ishmael. They wanted Eleazar. Right? They, all of these choices were made but God said, no, 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 at each turn, and said, I will, it is through Isaac. And remember, Abraham and Sarah laughed in God's face when God told them that. God's, he didn't budge, he, didn't, he wasn't deterred by that. He says, you know what, this time next year, you're going to have a son, and you will name him Isaac. He even told them what the name's going to be. They, after they finished laughing and all that, they got up and they began to trust God. They said, okay, God, you, you said that. This is what we're going to do. We're going to put our trust in you. 
and that's when Abraham and Sarah, I would say, she was the one who had the baby, became what we would say the father of faithful. Father is the pattern of, the way of, of faith for everybody. Yeah, salvation by grace even sounds crazy to people. It sounds crazy, the fact that God would give you salvation free, and yet we believe it because this is what God told us, and we put our trust in God and his power and his provision for us. That's, that's why we believe. And that is the same pattern that Abraham, who is the father of the faith, faithful, of all of us who believe, that's the same type of faith. We're trusting in the word of God, in the provision of God. So that's the first thing. So we're in point B, right? So the subject is about us. It's the church and, and is using to the forming of the nation Israel. And, and it has to do with Pharaoh. We went through the whole thing with Pharaoh. God says, I raised you up for this very purpose. So what was Pharaoh doing? What was, why is he mentioned so prominently? It's because Pharaoh was trying to interfere with God's eternal purpose. Remember, Israel is a part of that. God called them. He foreknew them. So anything that gets in the way, whether it be human will, thinking, you know, I'll, uh, God, you haven't given me a son, so I'm going to, uh, here, we'll just do this. No. No, that's interfering with God's eternal purpose. He clearly tells, no, that should not be. And then when Pharaoh comes along, Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not letting your people go. No way. Mm -mm. Not going to do that. So Pharaoh is literally in the way. So God says, you know what I'm going to do? I know Pharaoh's going to resist me, but I'm going to continue to show, put on this show, let's, let's present a plague, let's let Pharaoh relent, let's see him change his mind, harden his heart. Let's see this whole thing over and over. And the whole world saw God extract Israel out of Egypt. It was by the power of God that he did it. So Pharaoh was used as an example of God's sovereignty. Like God says, nobody's going to stop me from, from doing what I want to do in terms of creating his eternal purpose throughout the world. And that's what he did. Pharaoh couldn't stop him. Pharaoh didn't have enough power. And guess what? We don't have enough power to thwart to God's will. There's no way we can stop it. Even if we decide we don't like it, God's going to continue on with his eternal purpose and bring many sons into glory ultimately. In this case, he was going to form the nation Israel. Okay, so, so that's the first point. That's why it's contextual confirmation, because we've been talking about that the whole time. Right? So even you said, well, wait a minute, that's about Israel. But point number two says the subject began in the previous chapter, which was exclusive to the church, and that the questions uh, were raised. And this is Romans chapter 8. So if we go through 8... After he kept, he, the whole thing is about the church and the new age and all the new dynamics of the spiritual life, how the baptism of the Spirit made us sons and, and how uh, the, the whole creation is waiting for the sons of, of, of God to be revealed. And then he went into, oh, well, this was a glorious chapter. I'd like to even go over this stuff again. It would be fun. But 
but then we got to this whole point where he started talking about um, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be a firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. These are heavy words. But just note, these are words that were used of Israel, but they are now used for the church. It Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's saying all these things are true of them. Just remember, for Paul to say he's the apostle to the Gentiles is a slap in the face to Jews. See, look, Jews, <laughs> Jews did not think that the Gentiles had a calling uh, of God. They were not foreknown. They were not predestined. They were not justified. They were not... All those things certainly did not have any traction among the Jews. In fact, they hated it. So that's why Paul starts off saying what he says in 31 through 39. Here's what he says. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, we know who. We know who. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? So again, Paul's answering the question, who could possibly object to this? This is God doing it. Well, <laughs> Who would possibly have something to say? And he answers it. There's no way. He, God the Father judged Christ and gave him up for us. He, certainly, he's, he's free to give us, graciously give us, all things. That's part of our heritage. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who would possibly do that? Well, people were literally doing it. Paul was fighting day and night with these people who were uh, trying to tell him God is not going in this direction. Paul saying, yes, God already did. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So whoever could possibly object to the church they don't have a leg to stand on because they're not the ones who sent, who did not spare his own son. They're not the ones who have any right to condemn because Christ is the one who died and was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who would like to dismantle what we have in Christ? Who could do that? Is it possible? It's not possible, first of all, to shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword. And then he says that it is written, we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. So who could separate us from Christ if the Jews had it their way? Because that's what they're wanting to do, by the way. They're wanting to destroy God's eternal purpose. They're, God said, here's it is. Here's what my eternal purpose is. The Jews said, no, that is not true. And we're going we're gonna to say, if that's true, then the word of God has failed. We're going to cry foul if you do that. So no, in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then I'm convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God chose this. There's nothing anybody could do about it but God, except God is for it. This is his plan. Certainly he's not going to do anything about it. This is what he wants. So, when we, when we think about that, that's how we got chapter 9. God defending his position. So the subject began with the previous chapter and was exclusive to the church, which we saw. And the questions were raised. That's point number two in our notes. Let's get back to our notes. We're going to see if we can get to this. Uh, point, uh, we're in C now. Why are we called? So even us, whom he also called. Why are we called? Because, because the answer, I'm answering it, because he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that's Ephesians 1, 4. But you can also go to Ephesians 4, 4. And here it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Notice, we're not, we know there's not two different hopes right now. There's not the hope of Israel and the hope of the church. There's just one right now. I mean, the hope of, once the church is done, then God's going to deal with Israel. That's that's next. That's in the tribulation. But right now, there's just one hope to which, which we were called, one spirit, and one baptism. All those things talk about the church and the uniqueness that we have in Christ. So, and then there's Second Timothy two thirteen through sixteen. Let's quickly read this. Second Timothy two. 13 through 16 says, um, Second Timothy, no, it's, this is not Second Timothy 2. It should be Second Thessalonians. Sorry about that. Please correct your notes. Second Timothy 2, 13 through 16. I said Timothy. Second Thessalonians 2, right? 13 through 16. 16. Let's read it. But we ought to always we we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit through belief in the truth. Notice how we got saved, right? He called you to this to this through the gospel. Now notice the gospel is what saves us, but we were called through the gospel, and he says our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, it doesn't say it any better than that. I mean, you couldn't have, I mean, when you put these verses together, all I can say is, wow, talk about we are called, and what are we called to? Are we called to Israel? Are we, we Mosaic law? What, what are we supposed to be doing? This is something unique. He called us to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or 
by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, the God, and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So talk about, you know, it's even us, and as our text in Romans, even us whom he also called. So we got this new calling. We got this unique calling. And so, so that's who we are in Christ, right? So point D, where, but it also says also called. Even us whom he also called. Well, who else was called? Because that implies that, uh, that there's another calling. And who is it? It's the nation Israel, of course, in context. So notice this verse is kind of showing, yeah, yeah, there's two callings. The calling to nation Israel and the calling for the church. Now, the calling for the nation Israel was known. Right? We read about it in the Old Testament. In fact, we read about it in Romans 9. It wasn't Abraham, it was Isaac, it was Jacob. It was Esau, it was Jacob. Right? God called, he, he specific, calling is God's sovereign will. But there are two callings. God formed the nation Israel and he's forming the church. So, so that to me is clear why he says also. Just that word also there is important. So point number two. So even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Okay, when he's talking, he's talking about us. Right? Let's see. So the first point is not only from the Jews, right? Meaning that he's not only speaking about the calling of Israel. Because when he says not, not only about the Jews, right? Because the Jews had the calling. It's established. Everybody knows that. Right? So not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Meaning that it's not only speaking about the calling of Israel, but the calling of the church as well. How do we know that? Because no Gentiles weren't called from, uh, they didn't have the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you read the Old Testament, everybody is not supposed to turn, God, the Jews didn't come as the nation Israel to turn the whole world into Israel. The whole world wasn't supposed to be Israel. That wasn't the point of it all. It was that they were to be God's priest nation to the world, to the world of nations. And the nations weren't necessarily going to drop everything they did and then convert to Judaism. That wasn't, God wasn't trying to spread Judaism all over the world. That was a special law and operation for that people. I digress too much. Let's continue. Right? Point B. Prior to the church age, it was all about the nation Israel. They were chosen and they were called, right? So there's no question. No Jews had any problem with that. But also from point C, but also from the Gentiles. Gentiles now have a prominent place in the eternal purpose of God. So there's a change with this new calling. It includes Jews and Gentiles. That's never heard of before. So we can read Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. Do we have time? Yeah, we're going to try. Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 says, Therefore, remember that formerly 
you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Remember we saw the doxology in 9, Romans 9, in the beginning? Gentiles didn't have any of this without hope and without God in the world. In other words, when it came, Gentiles had to wait to, for Jews to come to tell them what the gospel was because they didn't have, uh, you know, in their culture where God came and showed up and said, here it is. God was showing them, right, through the nation Israel. But now, there's a difference, but now in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create, here it is, in himself, in Christ, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And then it goes on, there's much more to say. Uh, but for the sake of time, we're, we're going to uh, not read all of that. And also we have Ephesians 3.6. Ephesians 3.6 says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together. And this one body is not without, with, is no law here, not the Mosaic law. That's why he talks about destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, which was against, that's the law, right? So the Jews and Gentiles come together, but not on the basis of the Mosaic law, but on the basis of the mystery information that has been now revealed in the, in the New Testament epistles. So, so that's, the mystery is they're sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So that's important. Point D in our notes the Jews would readily accept their calling. No problem. But are reticent to accept the Gentiles are called. So, so just hearing that Paul, as I said, the apostle to the Gentiles. What are you talking about, apostle to the Gentiles? You, you, you're you, a Pharisee, and you're supposed to support and, uh, uh, and honor Israel. And by doing this, you're destroying Israel. Well, that's how the Jews felt. And so Paul is... He, pointing this out. Point E, the Jews also rejected the idea that there is a new dispensation and continue to compel Gentiles. Now, why would they compel Gentiles to keep the Mosaic Law and be circumcised? It is because they were trying to convert them. And there was a way that Gentiles in the Old Testament could convert to Judaism. There is a way, uh, a process by which that could happen. And so the, the Gentiles um, were, some submitted to that, but not, not many. Some did submit to converting to becoming a Jew. And there were things that they had to do. Uh, if you go to Acts 15, 1 through 6, we talk about the Jerusalem Council. And you might see that they wanted people to keep the Mosaic Law and be circumcised there in Acts chapter 15. But in reality, these were believing Jews. So we just want to note 
those people in Acts 15, those Jews were not unbelieving Jews trying to get people to keep the Mosaic Law. They believed in Christ. They said, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. However, we don't trust this whole dispensation thing where you're telling us that we're not under the Mosaic Law and we, that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. No, we're not going with that. Because what were they saying? They were saying that we reject this whole new body, this whole new calling. These are even these are believing Jews who thought this. They refused to believe a new dispensation had dawned. So imagine that. Think about it. Point F. This is our closing point. As we move forward, the apostle will continue to find examples in the Old Testament that help make the point, notice, to Israel. So he's going to have to use examples that they understand from their uh, holy scripture, from Old Testament. Paul's going to appeal to them even further. And obviously we know the mystery is not in the Old Testament, but Paul can use the Old Testament to make as many points as he feels necessary. And he will. We'll, uh, we'll go through why he uses certain scriptures as it relates to the context. We're, we'll go through that in the coming weeks. So, I know this is a lot to, uh, to, to take, but we have notes. And remember, don't forget to change your notes uh, in point 1C. Remember, it's not 2 Timothy, it's 2 Thessalonians. Let me change mine too. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16, not 2 Timothy. So, um, but hopefully, you know what? If you have questions, that helps. Your questions are, just like the questions today, were, in my mind, very helpful to us understanding certain points of, of, of doctrine. I think, please ask. Don't just sit on it. I appreciate the questions that we do get. It allows us to expand our our thinking even in areas that we wouldn't normally think. So it is it is good, it's challenging, it's it's all of those things, but that's where we live here at Word is True. So let's bow our heads as we close and we'll continue uh, with uh, with prayer. Thank you, Father. We we love that you have presented us with the word of God and preserved it for us. We thank you for those who are here and we pray, Lord, that you will give us uh, not only the respect and, and, and adoration for the word of God, that we'll even be willing, Father, to sacrifice our lives for it if necessary, if called upon. But if not, Father, we would become living sacrifices on your altar for your word and the spirit of truth who motivates us, influences us. So we thank you for the fellowship that we have in this church. And it is rich. We, we love the word of God. And uh, those who come here uh, are the same, Father. They, they love the word of God. So we pray for each and every family that is represented. We pray for those who are sick among us, Father, those who may still be in the hospital. Uh, 
we pray for those who are in pain that ask we're asking for healing if it be according to your will and father we pray as we close that you would watch between us father be uh, so that we can come back on sunday and continue our our journey in the word of god and in the book of john all of this we ask in christ's name and for his sake amen amen, amen.